Good morning, everyone. Great to see you here. Uh, I was out at the Asian Cup final last night, and uh, I'm a little bleary-eyed, but uh, it was amazing being out there. Uh, and I'll tell you the incredible thing. Um, it's something being in a crowd of 77,000 people, and they're all singing. Ole, 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 ole. Anyway, I just got a glimpse of heaven. I thought, you know, heaven is going to be even better than this. And honestly, the cheer that went up when uh, James Triosi scored the kind of winning goal was just, it was actually deafening in the stadium. And uh, it was a wonderful experience. But I thought, you know what, we're actually looking forward to something far greater than that. And I know it's hard to grab your head around it, but honestly, when the Lord Jesus is revealed, it's going to be incredible. And today we're setting out, really, I think, Today is kind of the start of the year in church world. I know we've had kind of a month. It's the 1st of February today, and we've been going for a month in Australia. Um, but I think 2.15, you kind of start in church land. 1st of January, it's the holiday season. People are away. Um, school's off. But everyone's kind of back now, aren't they? Um, except for uni students. Anyway, they're kind of a special breed. I've got two of them at home, and uh, they're still lounging around. But today, really, I think, is when we start getting moving for the year. And I love the start of the year for all sorts of reasons. One is um, it really gives you an opportunity for change and growth as people. And uh, every new year enables you to put mistakes and the disappointments of the past year behind you and start moving ahead. And Ecclesiastes says this, uh, there's a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. And I think particularly the start of the year, it's a time kind of to reassess where are you. And I know one of the things I tried to do is have a coffee with my wife to reassess our life. And uh, anyway, our son came and joined, which kind of changed the uh, mood of it. We had a good time talking with him, but uh, we're yet to kind of get that coffee together again. And I want to do that because, you see, I think you want to start the year and think, what are we on about? Uh, Where are we going? And there's no doubt, um, as you start the year here at St. Matthew's, it signals a fresh time for fresh vision for us as God's people. And one of the things I'm working on at the moment and we're going to be communicating as we go through the year is a renewed vision for us as a parish for the next five years as we clarify where we're going heading towards 2020. Now that seems such a long way away, but I think it's very important that we kind of get our sights clear at this stage and get fresh vision about where are we going as God's people. And to help us just today think about that topic, um, we're starting the beginning of a series on 1 Corinthians. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with 1 Corinthians. Um, It's a great letter. It's a long letter. There's 16 chapters in it. Uh, But we're going to be going on a journey that will take us through, I think, one of the most interesting books of the Bible, Paul's first letter to the Corinthians church. And we're going to attack it through a series of mini-series. It's not kind of we're going to do 25 messages in a row. Uh, we've actually got five different series that we've broken it up to. And the one that we're looking at today and starting today is called Imperfect Church. As you begin this book of Corinthians, what you notice is uh, there's quite a few problems here in the church at Corinth. And they were not a perfect bunch of people, which I think is helpful because actually there is no perfect church, is there? And honestly, if you find the perfect church, don't join it because you'll only ruin it. Now, I'm saying that to myself as well. Um, The reality of church is it is a great place, but also all of us have got issues that we bring and they affect us. And 1 Corinthians is going to speak to us on all sorts of issues through the year. Um, It's a church that struggled with issues of wisdom and pride. It's going to challenge us about godliness 
in a culture that is not godly? What does it mean to be holy when the culture says anything goes? It's going to raise pastoral issues for us regarding marriage, divorce, singleness, sexuality, pride, leadership, church discipline, uh, the charismatic movement, speaking in tongues, prophecy, just to name a few. Uh, There's a whole range of issues here that we're going to be going through through the series. And all the while, it's going to keep calling us back to the Lord Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection and to life by his spirit as what is the answer and the strength for us to live in this world in a way that pleases him. And if you don't know much about the city of Corinth, um, it was a place in the ancient world that was quite a significant city in Greece. In many ways, it was kind of a, a link of trade routes as people went from the east across to the west. Uh, it was very intellectually alert. It was very materially prosperous because of all the trade that took on. And yet, along with the intellect and, if I can say, the material prosperity, there was, which is often the case, moral corruption. And as you look at Corinth, there's many similarities to life here in Sydney. Intellectually alert, materially prosperous, yet morally corrupted. And in many ways, it's like manly. Beautiful place to go, a party place, but yet not a godly place. And so it's a great letter. And I want us to pray that we are transformed as a church as we look at this letter. And so I want to pray just now, God... Give us fresh vision about what your people are to be. So just pray with me as we start this series. Father, I do pray that you would be at work in our lives as we read this letter together, as we study it, as we apply it to our lives. May we be transformed and become your people in a way that honours you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today, I want us to think about this question. What is God's vision for his church? What is God's vision for his church? I think that's the question that's being raised as we look at the beginning of chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. Now, if you're not familiar with uh, this letter at all, let me give you a couple of facts about the Corinthian church and the people there. Uh, The church was planted in AD 50 by the Apostle Paul. And we know that because uh, there's an inscription there to the Roman ruler, which actually dates the time of Paul's visit. In fact, it's one of the most accurate pieces of archaeology in the New Testament era, and we actually date the rest of the New Testament uh, and the book of Acts off this inscription that's in Acts chapter 18, verse 12, about Archelaus, the um, proconsul who's there. And so Paul starts the church there in roughly 50 AD, and he stayed for 18 months ministering the gospel. And many people came to faith in this church, Uh, It was not easy when he first went there. We read in the book of Acts that he was afraid and the Lord Jesus comes in a vision and tells him to keep speaking because he is with him. He has many people in the city. That's the Lord Jesus that he wants to save. And many people came to faith typically from non-Jewish backgrounds. And you might say, it's a slightly pejorative way of talking about, they had pagan backgrounds and they brought into the church with them all of their odd ideas about how life is to be lived. And in many ways, they just reflected the cultural lostness of ancient Corinth. 
And so Paul is there ministering for 18 months, preaching the gospel, teaching the word, and trying to help them grow and become God's people. He leaves to plant other churches. And during that time, issues develop in the church. Now, it's worth saying we actually know more about the church in Corinth and the life of what took place there than any other church in the New Testament. It is the most written about. There's actually four letters that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. Did you know that? We actually have two of them. There's two others that he mentions that have disappeared. We don't have them today. But we've got four letters written, two that we've got. This one has 16 chapters. The next one has 13 chapters. There's 29 chapters about one church, which tells you something. There's a lot that's going on there, okay? And it's very helpful because it's going to help us think about what church life should be like here. And I've just got a number of things that I want to talk about this morning as we think about God's vision for his church. And the first is this, the church actually belongs to God. Let's have a read from chapter 1, verse 1. And I'm on page 1142 of the New Black Church Bibles. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And our brother Sosthenes to the church of God in Corinth. Just have a look at those two words, three words there in verse 2, the church of God. Uh, What Paul is saying unequivocally here in verse 2 as he starts the letter is that the church belongs to God. It's actually his church. And I think it's worth restating that every year. You see, the church is not my church. Uh, The church is not the parish council's church, the warden's church. It's not your church. It's not the Anglican Archbishop of Sydney's church. Glenn Davies doesn't own this church. Uh, This church actually belongs to God. Now, I know you'll say this is my church, and that's out of a sense of warmth and belonging. This is the church I go to. It's the church I belong to, which is great. Nothing wrong with that. But in terms of ownership, the one who owns this church is actually God. You see, it's God. He created it. And every member of the church, every one of us who are members here, he has paid for our admission and our membership. And he's paid for it by the blood of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, we are purchased people. And we belong to him in his church. Now, it's interesting. The staff caught me saying this phrase this week. And I said, I don't want this happening in my church. Remember, Dave? And they all corrected me. It's God's church, Bruce. (laughs) It's not yours. Now, I was talking about something that I thought was aberrant that shouldn't happen here. And I was going, I don't want this happening here in my church. And uh, they rightly corrected me. You see, I don't own it. I am just here to lead under God's direction. And to teach his word to you so that we all, me included, have God's wisdom for how we live and breathe and operate as his people here. And it's such a simple phrase, yet it has got profound consequences. You see, ownership is a very important concept in our culture. Uh, Lawyers, corporations, they fight over the rights and the issues of ownership in a whole myriad of ways with copyright law, uh, intellectual, property rights, patents for the ownership of new ideas... The weekends are a buzz on the northern beaches as people seek to get physical property and own that. And there's nothing wrong with owning something in our world. 
but it can trick you into thinking actually it's our church. And there's a sense of which we can just think, well, I'm just going to do what I want. And we need to keep coming back every year and go, actually, you know, it's God's church. He owns it. It's his. And we need to seek his wisdom and vision and his power and protection in the running of the church. Now, if you're new to St. Matthew's, one of the things we do at the start of every year is we have a week of prayer and fasting. Now, I'd love you to get out this little blue form that is inside your handout. Now, why do we have a week of prayer and fasting? We've always done it. You know why we have it? It's because this church belongs to God. And we're called here to serve him. And I reckon one of the most important things we can do at the start of the year is seek him. And get on our knees and pray to him. And not just get on our knees and pray to him, but actually give up what is a good thing. And look, everyone who knows me knows I love my food. Um, and in particular, I love my red meat. I had some lamb cutlets last night. They were delicious. The fatty bits, you shouldn't eat them, but do you love doing it? And I love it. But you see, it's not the most important thing in our life. Food. We depend on it for sustenance and strength. It gives us joy. It brings people together in fellowship. And we give it up for this reason, because there is a greater purpose in life. It is knowing the living God. And we give it up to remember that we are totally dependent on him. And we humble ourselves before him as we seek him in prayer and fasting. And let me say, prayer and fasting is not about giving up chocolate and alcohol and coffee for the week. It's about giving up food and not eating. That's what it means. And look, there's different ways you can attack that, and I don't want to quiz people about what they do. But you see, the hunger reminds us of our need and our dependence as people. That we are people who depend on other things to be sustained. And as you pray and fast, you realize you are totally dependent on God. And we pray and fast as a church, and I call us to do it every year because I want us to know that we are totally and utterly dependent upon God for all that happens here this year. And I look at things that happen in the year, and I, I know every year as we start the year, there's going to be miracles through the year. And I look back at the end of the year and see the miracles that have happened in the year, and I go, I'm so glad we started by praying. It's incredible the things that happen. And you read through the scriptures and at significant times in the life of the people of God, they prayed and they fasted. One that I brought to the people last week, Ezra 8.21. He called the people to fast and to pray as they entered out on a great journey to the promised land, as they went to rebuild the temple. And he prayed for guidance and protection and provision. You think about Daniel. We know about his fast of vegetables at the beginning of Daniel, but did you know he also fasted and prayed in Daniel chapter 9? when he was confronted with a vision of judgment and he sought God's face in prayer and fasting, Jesus, as he began his ministry, he prepared for it by praying and fasting. The mission outside of Israel to the Gentile world, that's us, began with a session of prayer and fasting. Paul or Saul and Barnabas and the other leaders of the church in Antioch prayed and fasted and worshipped God. And from that, the Holy Spirit spoke and set aside Paul and Barnabas 
to begin the mission to the world and they were sent out. And the gospel's gone out to the four corners of the world as a result. And you see, this is God's church and every year we need his power. Every year we need his provision. Every year we need his protection. Every year we need his wisdom and direction. Every year. And so I ask you to come and join me this week as we pray and fast. And we're going to collect these in the offertory. Last song, okay? I'd like you to, between now and then, think about if you can fast for a day. Try it if you've never done it before. If you've done a day, why don't you do two days? Join me for the week. And the church will be open here at breakfast and lunchtime, deliberately. And we're going to pray. We get 10, 20 people down here for the sessions. It's great. And if you'd like to come and join, come down for the day, 7 to 8 o'clock in the morning before work, lunchtime, 12 to 12.30. Every day during the week, it'll be open. It's worth saying for the first day tomorrow, there's a funeral in the morning here in the church, a large funeral. We'll be in the function room. That'll be open. But do come and join us 7 o'clock starting tomorrow morning. That's the first thing. The church is God's. That's what we need to get clear in terms of our vision. It belongs to him. Second, the church is called to be holy. Have a look at verse 2, the next part of it. The church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Now, Paul opens with two statements about the people of Corinth, the Christians there. They are sanctified is the first thing. And the second thing, they are to be God's holy people. Now, the second statement is not surprising that he is saying you need to be holy because, you see, that church had all manner of sins besetting them. There were sexual sins that ranged from incest to sleeping around to homosexuality. We're going to look at all of that. There was marriage divorce issues. There was fighting and bickering. There was inequality of wealth as the wealthy looked after themselves and the poor were neglected. There were theological errors. And so it's not surprising that he says, actually, I want you to be holy. You know what is surprising, though, is the first phrase, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. In other words, to those who are holy. And here's the incredible thing of the gospel. The gospel gives you your identity. When you turn to Christ and trust in him, regardless of who you've been and the sins that you have. And you see, your identity is shaped by Christ and not by your failures and not by your sins and not by the issues you struggle with. Our identity is in Christ as God's people. And Paul says to this really motley rabble, to those who are sanctified, to those who've been set apart, to those who are holy in Christ Jesus and called to be holy. Do you know the secret to change in the Christian life? It's actually getting a firm grip on your identity in the Lord Jesus Christ that you don't define yourself by your failures and your sins. I'm someone who struggles with this, or I'm an alcoholic, or I'm a drug addict, or I'm a thief. The gospel says, no, don't define yourself by that. Define yourself by who you are in Christ. I am someone who has been made holy and declared holy in Christ, who struggles with, and who has been called 
in the power of the gospel to change. You see, the incredible truth of Scripture is in Christ, we are God's holy people. And this letter is going to challenge us. It's going to help us to understand how to live a life that pleases God in this mixed up world. And there's no doubt our culture is very mixed up in terms of how do you live life well here. The interesting thing is this, and the deeper issue is this. I don't think the Corinthians really saw it to start with. You see, they saw themselves as being spiritual. They thought they were having great times of the Spirit of God at work in them, yet they didn't realize that their spirituality actually had to affect how they carried on with their bodies. And they kind of had this disjunction between their spirituality, yeah, God's doing great things, and actually it doesn't matter how how I live. Well, actually it does matter how we live. And that's how we express part of our spirituality is in our life. One of the things that struck me is when I first became a Christian 30 years ago, there was a lot of discussion around the topic of what it meant to be godly and holy. And people talked about striving to be a holy or godly person. And it's interesting, I just don't hear that language today. We talk more about wanting to be contextual and reach our culture. Now, I'm all for that. There's a deep evangelist within me that wants to go out and connect with people from our community who have no idea about the Christian faith. And I encourage us to all have those connections. Yet we must go out as people who have been transformed and who are holy and who reflect who God is, not reflect the culture itself. You see, this is God's vision for his church that he be the God of this church and we be a holy people. But thirdly, the church to be spiritually alive. Let's have a look at verse 4 through to verse 9. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you've been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful and has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, I think this is the second remarkable comment about this motley crew, the Corinthian church. Because you see, he could have at the very beginning go, I am pulling my hair out because of you. (laughs) What on earth are you doing? What's gotten into your minds? And you know what he starts by saying? Have a look, verse 4. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. You know what he celebrates? He celebrates the fact that they're Christians. And he celebrates the reality that God's grace has brought them alive in Christ. And there is a spiritual life about them that was remarkable. Now, yes, there's some crazy stuff happening in all kinds of ways. But yet there's a rejoicing at the start. He gives thanks because of the grace given you in Christ Jesus. Verse 5, you've been enriched in every way. There's a sense of which the Spirit of God is alive in you. And he's delighted to see that. 
Verse 7, you don't lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. And we see in this the vision of God for his people. You see, God wants us to be transformed and alive and ministering to each other with the gifts he's given us. His vision is that we would be alive as a church. God is working here. People's lives are being transformed as they step out of darkness into the light of the gospel. And they start to understand who God is and his wonderful salvation, the forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternity. And they start to have his grace work in their lives so they are turned around from people who seek their own good and are self-seeking to people who honour God and serve the world. You see, grace is not just about having our sins forgiven. It is about God's favour and his love that is poured into our life by his spirit. And it transforms us. And you see, Paul is so confident of the work that God has begun in this motley crew's life that he finishes this section with these words, he will also keep you firm to the end. In other words, Paul is not giving up on this group. And he says, so that you'll be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you see, this is the power of the gospel. It has, through the shed blood of Christ, the power to forgive our sins and give us this new identity in Christ where we are blameless. And Scripture says that God who began this good work in us will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. That's in Philippians. Verse 9, God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his Son. In other words, he will get you there. And you see... God wants us to be alive through the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants his church to be alive. He wants it to be a place where he's at work, where lives are being transformed and changed, where the addictions that we struggle with are overcome in the power of the Spirit, where marriages are healed, where lives are turned around, where self-centered people become focused on serving others in the world, a place where people are being saved and brought in. If you sign up, with this sheet, one of the things I will do is I'll email you the prayers for the week. And I will have 10 top things that we're going to be praying for, for this church for this year. And I tell you, at the very top of the list is this, it's for gospel renewal. Because my prayer and passion is that we are a place that the gospel is bringing renewal and revival into our lives. Where sleepy Christians are being woken up and they're coming to life in their faith. Where nominal Christians, who really are just Christian in name only, are getting converted and being born again. Where outsiders who've been far away from the Christian faith are coming in, they're encountering God, and they are being saved and being wonderfully transformed. You see, that is our prayer. And where those who are walking well with Christ continue to grow in Him and are alive. And let me ask you this question, what's the reality not just of your profession of Jesus Christ, but actually your experience of his grace in your life. Can you say with Paul that you've been enriched in every way? Can you say with Paul that you've been given grace in Christ Jesus? Can you say with Paul that you've been blessed and gifted so that you're serving others? 
You see, there's a difference between professing the name of Christ and knowing the reality and experience of him in your life. And I wonder, as we start the year, do you need to come back to the Lord Jesus Christ and back to his grace that's found at the foot of the cross and be filled with his spirit and brought to life in the Lord Jesus That's why this week of prayer and fasting is so important. It's not just as we pray for the church. It's a time to pray for ourselves. That God would renew us and bring us to life. Well, lastly, as I finish up, the church is to be united in mission. Let me just read to you this last section. It's fascinating. And you see here the beginning of the issues that Paul begins to address. Verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels amongst you. And what I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another says, well, I follow Apollos. Another says, well, look, I follow Cephas. And another says, I follow Christ. Friends, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God, actually, that I did not baptize any of you, well, except for Crispus and Gaius, so that none of you can say you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I actually don't remember if I baptized anyone else. Four, Christ didn't send me to baptize but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now, what do you make of that introductory section about the issues facing the Corinthian church? What strikes me is there's two things that were happening and one thing that wasn't happening. What strikes me is two things that were happening and one thing that wasn't happening. Two things that were happening. There was bickering that was based around personalities, You've got some saying, look, I, I follow Peter. I really like him. Don't know about this Paul guy. And there's other, no, Paul's great. Don't know about Peter. He's kind of a bit of a hothead. Then there's other, Apollos, I like him. Very eloquent. And then others, oh, actually, I follow Jesus, the Christ. Yeah, he, he's the one. Don't know about these human guys. And there's this party spirit and bickering between them. And so the first thing you notice there is this bickering and arguing that's going on. And the second thing is, what happens when that happens? You've got disunity. It's not like you've got to split down the middle of the church. You've just got to rabble. There's all sorts of groups who are kind of fighting amongst each other. It's a proverbial mess. It's a dog's breakfast. You've got issues of pride. You've got spiritual superiority. You've got rich and poor class divisions, personality cults. And it's just this rabble of disunity. So that's the two things that is happening. What's not happening? You know what's not happening? The gospel's not getting preached. I think that's why Paul says, actually, I didn't come to baptize. I came to preach the gospel. And I can tell you my experience of church life is this. Whenever churches get caught up, fighting amongst themselves, you know what happens? We stop thinking about our mission to reach the world. We stop thinking about people who are lost and who need hope and forgiveness. 
We stop thinking about how we can be a light in darkness as we fight together. And we consume all sorts of energy. Now, thankfully, that's not what's happening here at St. Matthew's. But it's worth reflecting. You see, what is God's vision for his church? It's that we, as his people, would be holy and different to this world, yet wonderfully spiritually alive in Christ, touched by the incredible grace of God. All using our gifts to promote and proclaim the gospel together so that God's church might grow, so that people might be brought in and saved and transformed and the gospel spread. And friends, this is what we must be on about this year in every way. A light to the nation, a light to this city, a light to this town. Holy and godly, set apart for him. Alive in Christ as we minister together and proclaim the wonderful words of hope. Friends, I do invite you as we start this year to consider how you might pray and fast. And if I can invite you to fill these in now before we come and celebrate the Lord's Supper together as his people and put them in the basket when it comes around later. Let me pray. Father, may we start this year well and we thank you for these words. May we have your vision for your church to be your people. And Father, we pray, make us alive in the Lord Jesus Christ. Free us and protect us from disunity and arguments and unite us with a common mind so that we might preach the gospel. And we ask in Jesus, our wonderful name and saviour. Amen.